Well, good evening, and um, yeah, thank you, Ben, and thank you for standing in two weeks ago at short notice, very short notice, so thank you for that. So as, as Ben said, we're going back slightly um, into chapter 7, so verse 31 is where we're starting it. I don't know, I'll just show you these, I don't know if you've seen these little journaly type things, it's just like it's just Mark, and so you can... Uh, just well, that one's a blank one shows we haven't done much work but you know record notes on the next to it if you're wanting to and you can, it's, I mean it's an ESV uh, translation but they're, they're quite useful use this I've only got the one this is my personal one okay so they're quite useful okay good okay well um we're in chapter 7, uh, going to start at verse 31 and we go through to chapter 8, verse 10. And it sort of divides into two main stories, accounts, um, but I'm going to divide it into three sections tonight. Um, now it's not quite usual, always necessary, when you're looking at a, a passage to give it a title necessarily, but I've given it the title... Oops, I'm going to stop moving about. The road less travelled. It just seems an appropriate... Oh, don't worry, that's fine. It, it just seems appropriate, partly because of the slightly unusual journey that Jesus goes on, and also because sometimes it's in the little verses that aren't the obvious ones, the go-to verses, that sometimes reveals a bit more, isn't it? So that, that's the reason behind the, the title. Okay, so we're actually going to start uh, just by looking at verse 31. So I'm hoping, yeah, there we are. Okay, uh, and this is just, I've highlighted the first part of the verse. Okay, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Um, and I think that... I have got a map here, I don't know if you can see particularly, but there's Tyre, there's Sidon, uh, and then obviously the Decapolis is here, see a Galilee there. So, we start, if you remember when Neil did his session, we talked quite a bit about the Syrophoenician woman, uh, how much that area was uh, quite Hellenistic in terms of its Greek culture and, and so on. Um, and so we're starting with Jesus being in Tyre. That's where he is this, as we start. Um, now, I was going to make bad jokes about, you know, taking, <laughs> taking the woman's photo. The best angle was side on. And, uh, uh, but I thought it would tire you. So, uh, so I won't give those jokes. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a little quote, um, it's from the ESV uh, study Bible, which is Wayne Grudem and, and his pals. He just says this, that Jesus preached far and wide to Galilean and Judean Jews, as well as the remnant people of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, who by this time had resettled in the Hellenistic or Gentile regions of Tyre, Sidon and Decapolis. 
So here we've got Northern Kingdom people of Israel. Besides the Greeks, the Gentiles, the Roman influence and so on in this area. So Tyre and Sidon, largely a Gentile area, but obviously an area that Jesus decided to visit, to spend time in. It's interesting perhaps to just consider this area of Tyre and, and Sidon in the light of Matthew eleven twenty to 22. So I think I've got it here. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So we can deduce from this that uh, Tyre and Sidon and that area were more receptive of the good news of the kingdom than Chorazin and Bethsaida, okay, which were the areas in which the Jews lived. Now, Schofield says this about verse 20. It's quite interesting, I thought, anyway. He says, The kingdom of heaven, announced as at hand by John the Baptist, by the king himself, as Jesus, and by the twelve, and attested by mighty works, have been morally rejected. The places chosen for the testing of the nation, Chorazin, Bethsaida, etc., having rejected both John and Jesus, the rejected king, now speaks of judgment. So we're getting to a fairly critical point in Jesus' ministry. We're getting roughly halfway through, aren't we, in, in Mark's account. Um, and so there is this turning away a bit from Israel. And perhaps that explains part of the reason that Jesus is spending time in some of these Gentile areas. So I think, yeah. Verse 31, second part of it. Now, the New King James says, it puts it like this. He says, again, parting from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. A little bit unclear, I think. The NIV puts it, then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Again, a little bit confusing. It's slightly, slightly different. So I've gone for the tried and tr trusted ESV. Uh, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So I think, yes, I think we've got... Uh, yeah, map here. Uh, no, let's go back. Let's no, go on to that one. So we're talking about Jesus was here and he goes up to here. Yeah. And um, where is it? The New Bible Dictionary refers to this as an unusual detour through the Hippos area on a journey from Sidon to the east shore of Galilee. So if I go back, I think, to this one. 
Oh no, let's just stay where we were for a minute on that, that map. So the Expositor's Bible Commentary says from Tyre north to Sidon. So we, oh, so probably pressing the wrong thing. That one. So Tyre north to Sidon. Then southeast across the Leontes or the River Litani in Lebanon. So it's then crossing from here, going across here, this way. <coughs> South, past Caesarea Philippi, which I think is here. Uh, sorry, past to the east of the Jordan River and into the region of Decapolis to the east side of Lake Galilee. So it go from here to here, round, down here, down here and into there. Now, that's not the most direct route to go. Um, so a little bit, I'm sure you know stuff about Decapolis, but I'll just tell you a little bit of, uh, about it. Um, I think, oh no, go back, go back to this one. Um, the towns of the Decapolis are there in, in pink. Um, it's a large area, south, sort of southeast of Sea of Galilee, mainly to the east of Jordan, uh, the River Jordan that is, being occupied by the Greeks and later the Romans who annexed the cities to the province of Syria, though each of the cities had municipal freedom. So they were sort of independent but associated together. According to Pliny, the original ten cities were Scythopolis, over here, um, Pella, Dion, Gerasa, Philadelphia, Gadara, Rafana, Canartha, Hippos and Damascus. So it spreads right from here, right across there, down to... So it's quite a big, big area. Uh, about 1 AD, they formed a league for trade and mutual defence against Semitic tribes. Now Jesus had been in this area before, uh, in Mark 5, where we saw him arrive and he heals the demonic man. Um, with the legion and so on. And many people also followed Jesus from this area. Uh, that's in, I think, Matthew 4 and verse 25, you can see that. But if we just think a little bit about this journey then, yeah, go on to that one, this little journey. Um, because it wasn't the most direct route, there are some commentators have, have questioned whether there was a mistake in this. Um, but Barclay says, and I think he's probably right, um, only because I like what he said, um, he says, almost certainly the text is correct as it stands. So we're going to take it as read. Okay. Now it's also, and I found this interesting, it's been suggested that this journey took up to eight months. Now that's a significant amount of time considering Jesus' ministry was only 42 months. So we're talking about something like 20% of Jesus' time was taken up on this journey, if that estimate is right. Now that's really quite, quite amazing. Um, and you wonder what the reason may have been and um, 
I don't know about you, but I've watched a bit of The Chosen and so on. And one of the things that struck me is how much of the time they seem to spend in camp, actually. And, and I know it's an interpretation and so on. And of course, you realise that actually that probably is true. There would have been quite a bit of time just together. And it's also, this is just a little bit different as well from the start of Mark. Do you remember when we started Mark? What we saw was that everything was immediately immediately this, immediately that. It was, it was fast-paced action. And suddenly, now in this middle point, somehow there's a slowing down, or there appears to be a slowing down. Now, I can't remember where I got this uh, bit I'm going to read to you now from. I forgot to write it down. Um, but it just says, it may well have been that this long journey is the peace before the storm. A long communion with the disciples before the final tempest breaks. Jesus needed this long time with his men before the strain and tension of the approaching end. In the next chapter, and I think it's probably in the next bit that's going to be looked at, I'm not sure if Lizzie is doing it, where Peter makes his confession about Jesus is the Christ. And so it may have been during this long period that some of that relationship and understanding and revelation took place and it became more of a certainty in Peter's mind. And I suppose the other thing worth, worth noting here is that this is a Gentile area. All of this is Gentile area. So Jesus is going from one Gentile area to another okay, in this. So... I don't know if there's any comments there before we just go on to the next bit. Um, I don't know what the distance was. I didn't make a note of that actually. Thank you. Yeah, what's the right one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know the exact distance. Sorry, I didn't make a note of that. Okay, now we're happy to press on and uh, we'll press on. Okay, so. I just wanted you to give, a, give you an opportunity to hear a different voice um, to mine. Okay. So, verses 32 to 35. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Um, and that's probably more correct. Okay, we'll have a look at the words in a minute. But it probably was that he was deaf and because of his deafness, found it difficult to, to speak. Um, uh, that's sort of borne out by a bit in verse 35, but we'll see. Um, so they brought a man who was deaf, had a speech impediment, and they begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. So that suggests that he previously spoke unplainly, um, and so perhaps he wasn't totally, totally mute. Um, so I'm just going to digress slightly. I said yesterday that I did see this uh, miracle of healing some time ago, and it was a young lad. Um, he, he was, I was going to say he was English, he wasn't, he was Scottish. But it was in Amsterdam. 
They had something to do with David Bowie, but I can't remember what that connection was uh, now. Um, but he arrived um, to, our co to the coffee bar. Um, and of course, the good thing was that, well, there was somebody there who could speak, use sign language. And of course, all the time the live music was playing, they could communicate. They didn't have to stop. Uh, in the end, he got saved. Um, and then one night, most of us all went to bed. But obviously, a group stayed up to pray with this uh, young man. And it turned out that his mother had been a spiritualist. Uh, he'd been deaf and dumb since he was five. Um, and all we knew about it was the next morning when we saw him walking around with hands over his ears, because it's too loud. And he had this really lovely Scottish accent. You know, and they'd cast out the demon of deafness, demon of dumbness on this guy, you know, which is quite a tremendous, you know, and it, the fact is God still does these things. And that, you know, I need to stir myself up in that, you know, to, to really believe that, you know, God still does all of this. Okay, so I can't remember what I've got on my next slide. No. Okay, so they brought to him then in verse 32, a man who was deaf and speech impediment, and they begged him to lay hands on him. Now, the, t the term that's translated deaf is kaphos, and it can mean deaf, mute, or both. Um, but Mark clarifies this by the use of an adjective. Uh, I don't know if this is the right way of saying it. Uh, mogilalos, mogilalos, which means either unable to speak or could only speak with difficulty. Um, and it probably is, as we said, that he could speak with difficulty, probably. Now, this use of this word mogilalos is significant, okay, because it's very rare. In fact, it's only used once here in the New Testament. And it's used once in the Greek Old Testament. And that's where the significance comes from. So in the Old Testament and the Greek Old Testament, what we find it in is Isaiah 35. Okay, which is all about the coming Messiah. And it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lamb, lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And where it says mute, that is the word mogilalos. And it's about the reign of the coming Messiah, the signs of it. Okay. And so this is a very deliberate use by Mark to signify that this is Jesus the Messiah. So. Okay. Uh, let's, I think, go back. So verse 33... Jesus takes the deaf and dumb man aside so as not to make a spectacle of his healing. That's one suggestion. So why, why does he do this? Why, see, and why, unlike most of his other healings, he uses a physical means to heal the man? Why, why do we think that that might be the case? Any thoughts? Why does he take him aside privately? Why does he spit and touch. Any thoughts? Perhaps he didn't want to embarrass him. Perhaps, yeah. 
yeah, yeah, maybe. It was more a healing than a deliverance. Right. Which is because he just says be opened. Yes. It wasn't a deliverance. Right, no. So um, perhaps he just wanted to, you know, that time with the man, on, you know, mm. this is you and me, you know, yes. yeah. special. Yes, indeed. Well, we'll press on. Do, do feel free to, you know, put your hand up if you want to just, just comment and so on. Um, suggestions from what, you know, I looked at and so on, but... Because not only does this healing demonstrate Jesus' power, but also it allows him to confront his disciples by word and deed with their problem of spiritual deafness and blindness. Because later on in chapter 8, it's clear that they're still hardened of heart. I think Ben would have mentioned this last week, you know, where they still hadn't really understood what Jesus was doing. And it talks about, verse 17, it says... Um, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And um, so it is about this. And it may be, see, then Jesus sighs. Why did he sigh? Why did Jesus sigh at this point? Amazing miracles just about to take place, but why does he sigh? One suggestion was perhaps it was because of the hard-heartedness of man, as well as the physical weakness of man resulting from the fall. That's just one thought that actually this is wearying to Jesus in one sense, that he's constantly um, up against this. Yeah. I think um, when something's in agony... No, I won't sit there. <laughs> when something's in agony, the agony is that this person... Oh, sorry, I'm going to turn it on. Thank you. The agony is that this person is deaf and mm, mute. Mm. And when you're, when you're praying for somebody who's yeah. distressed, mm. you know, it's part of the travail of the soul, isn't it? Yes. So a yeah. sigh is like, this is an agony. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness he's he's going to be set free. Yeah, yeah. a sort of compassion mm. thing, isn't yeah. it? Just, yeah, yeah. Yes, I suddenly thought of um, when he cried, obviously, at Lazarus's mm. tomb. Mm. A similar sort of yeah. thing. Yes. Yeah. So, and again, I didn't make a note of who said this, but they said, there is no miracle which so beautifully shows Jesus' way of treating people. He took the man aside from the crowd, all by himself. And throughout the whole miracle, Jesus acted what he was going to do in dumb show. In other words, he was demonstrating to this man who couldn't hear all the time what he was going to do by the touch and, and so on. And so it was a sort of a, a connection with the individual uh, in what he was doing. So the whole story shows us most vividly that Jesus did not consider the man merely a case. He considered him as an individual. The man had a special need and a special problem. And with the most tender considerateness, Jesus dealt with him in a way that spared his feelings and in a way that he could understand. Which I thought was, you know, just, just lovely, really. 
Okay, verse 36, it must be the next slide, no. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Jesus charged them, tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So Jesus' injunction to silence is addressed to, not only to the man, but to all who witnessed the healing. So why? Why did he do that? Why did he say, don't tell anyone? Um, it's probably a matter of timing. Right. You know, um, there's a time for Jesus to be revealed as the Messiah. Mm. Um, and so this would be, um, if it was kind of like recognized now, looking back at Isaiah 35, mm. um, that he would come under Roman oppression sooner than he, he actually did. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah. Just one other interesting point. Yeah. Who it doesn't tell you who brought the man no, to Jesus. Not exactly, no. And was this sceptical, unbelieving people, and that's why he brings them aside that they were hardened apart. Aha. Uh -huh. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yes, we don't know, do we? Back in chapter five. Uh, verse 19, I think it is, we got the, he the healing of the demoniac. Demoniac, yeah, legion and so on. Jesus said to him, you can't come with me, because he wanted to. Don't come with me. Go home to your friends and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So in that case, in the same, well, in the Decapolis, it's not exactly the same part of the Decapolis, but he's saying... No, go and tell people. And now he's saying, don't tell anyone. It's, um, yeah. They didn't obey him anyway. Perhaps that's what he knew. <laughs> he knows what's in the heart of man, doesn't he? And um, they go out and proclaim the miracle anyway. And then verse 37, it says, they were astonished beyond measure. I mean, I guess we would be, wouldn't we? Well, yeah. Astonished beyond measure. And they're saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So he's just astonished. He's done all things well. Isn't that a just an amazing declaration? So why might they have been astonished, I guess? Well, I suppose it's obvious in some ways, isn't it? But any thoughts about why they might be astonished in particular? I only say this because I found something that I wouldn't have come up with. So, <laughs> why astonished? Because obviously it's a very unusual miracle. <laughs> so, oh, you can use both mics. <laughs> Sorry, just because it it was obviously a very unusual mm. event. They mm. just hadn't seen anything like this before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it could be because they're starting to wonder if Jesus is the Messiah. They're not expecting a suffering servant, suffering Messiah, but they're perhaps just beginning to wonder, actually, if this is the case. And perhaps also because of his love and considerateness. We'll see a bit more of that in the next section. Perhaps they're just amazed at this man. 
and uh, his approach to even to individuals. So, um, we'll have a pause point. Is there anything else that you want to come up before we move on to the next section? Yeah, just um, commenting again about maybe the co connection between verses 36 and 37. So, um, they're astonished links to the, them needing to keep quiet. Yeah. Because just like with the feeding the 5,000 and they're starting to get all excited about Jesus being the king, mm. they really want to get free of Roman rule. Oh, right, yes. They really yes. think that he is going to be yes. the man to, to free To them. do it, yes. Um, and I've been watching a video today about how it was only in AD 6 or something like this that they started ta the Romans started really taxing uh -huh. um, the Jews and they, and they were starting to get really concerned that they were going to lose their distinctiveness as, as Jews. So, uh -huh. so, yeah, I think this whole business about Jesus keeping quiet, as Lizzie says, um, it's really Might be critical. timing. Yeah. Timing, yeah. I found myself thinking, how come they only brought out one person? One person, yes. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. why? When other places it's been to, yeah. they brought out everybody yes. who was sick yeah, yeah. in whatever way, and mm. he healed them. Mm. And they must have heard about what Jesus was doing, mm. because they knew who he was. Yes. And so they brought out this man who was, mm. but they obviously had some level of doubt or, mm. you know, mm. what we've heard, is it really true? Mm. You know, yeah. Otherwise they might have emptied the town of all the sick and yeah, yeah. wounded people mm. for mm. healing. But, uh, and the fact that they were astonished beyond measure, yeah. um, I think backs that up to a certain extent. Cause right. They, they really... Mm. Yes. They... Half, I think half of them weren't expecting the, the man to be healed. Mm. 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 So they, yeah. you know, that's yes. why they were so astonished. Yeah. It was yeah, just like a test be. case, really. Mm. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, you know, Jesus sometimes more or less infers he is the Messiah. Mm. He, yeah. He's telling people. Mm. But this is actually a demonstration mm. he is giving of him being the Messiah. The Messiah. Mm. If you look at the, at the um, passage in Isaiah 35. Yeah. So really, it's, you know, I it's, a, it's a mystery why he says don't tell anyone. Mm. Um, yeah, but yes. he is actually demonstrating that he is the, the Messiah. the Messiah, indeed. And he's doing it to a Gentile audience yeah. as well, oh, yeah. isn't he? He's doing it to a Gentile audience. So it's, it's an inclusiveness as well that's, that's coming here. Um, so um, the Gentile audience wouldn't be familiar with um, Isaiah 35. No, perhaps, no. Yeah, perhaps no. not. No. But if there were only Jewish people there. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Okay, let, let's, let's move on. I don't know what the time's doing, but... Um, um, okay. So we're into chapter 8, and um, it's worth noting, isn't it, that if this, this journey had been, this part of the journey had been eight months and so on, that actually the time since the feeding of the 5,000 would have been a reasonable amount of time. There would have been a lot of um, bridge under the water, as we know somebody says, or a lot of water under the bridge. Uh, since the feeding of the 5,000, a lot would have gone on. 
a lot. They would have heard a lot and, and so on. Um, now there is Matthew 15, we're not going to return to it, but Matthew 15, 32 to 39 is a companion passage to this. Um, so we've got the feeding here of the 4,000. So we'll just read this little bit through, verse 1 to 4. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Okay, feeding of 5,000 was only one day. This is three days. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So it seems that Jesus, you know, he did this to the Jews and now he's doing it amongst the Gentiles. So showing that he's the living bread, isn't he? Also here in Gentile territory. Now what we're not sure of, of course, is how much the disciples remembered of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, certainly Jesus sort of has to remind them and sort of rebuke them a bit when they a bit later on when they're talking about, he's talking about the leaven um, of the Pharisees and so on. But it seems, somebody put it as like this, they were constantly captive to their own very limited frame of reference. And um, so they're a bit limited. Jesus says to them in 8.17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And in Psalm 81, verse 10, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. Hallelujah. So it's, it's talking there, isn't it, that the, the difficulty that Israel had Jews would have in understanding and um, relating to God in terms of this. Now, just to be a little bit fair to disciples, it was a three-day gathering. I wonder if there's any significance in this. Perhaps the disciples were hungry and grumpy as well, so they might not be feeling too great, um, perhaps sitting on the side. You know, they may have heard a lot of what Jesus was already saying to these people. We, we don't know. Then he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven, which is, of course, the number of spiritual perfection or completion. And it may here symbolise the fullness of God's provision for all people including the Gentiles. So this is the fullness of God's provision, spiritual perfection. And as Israel is rejecting the kingdom, the Gentiles increasingly come into view in this place that we're at. Okay. And then he directed the crowd, verse 6, to sit down on the ground and he took seven loaves, gave thanks, he broke the, broke the loaves 
gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said that these should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and then he sent them away. So there was a great surplus again, seven baskets full. Now, we know in the other one it was, what, 12, wasn't it? Yeah. We're talking about different baskets, aren't we? These are big baskets. These are the sort of basket that Paul was let down in out of, outside of Damascus. Whereas the other ones were sort of lunch boxes, that sort of type of thing. They carried your, your meal around in. Um, so it's, this is, again, <laughs> demonstrates that Jesus is more than capable of fulfilling our needs and providing satisfaction beyond our need. Um, okay. I wonder if there's significance in the difference of the baskets. Is there any significance in it? I wonder if the quantity is different that that held. Twelve smaller ones, seven bigger ones. Possibly there was more in this one, in the Gentiles, one would think. A bigger harvest amongst the Gentiles, is that his significance? Perhaps. We don't, we don't know. Perhaps it would be. Okay. 4,000 people, and it doesn't add it doesn't say here 4,000 men plus women and children like it does with the feeding of the 5,000 it just says 4,000 people um, the question is why did this large crowd assemble no doubt the healing of the deaf and dumb man would have aroused interest that would have stimulated that gets a crowd doesn't it um, but we might also be seeing here the impact of the previous healing of the demoniac in the Decapolis. In that case, Jesus urged, uh, the crowd urged Jesus to go away, didn't they? They said, go away, Jesus, go away. The healed man wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus urged him to go back to his own people and tell them what great things he'd done for them. So it might just be possible that part of this great crowd was due to the missionary activity of the healed demoniac. And the quote was, have we got here a glimpse of what the witness of one man can do for Christ? Which is quite amazing thought. And I just wonder whether it was him or his compatriots that brought the deaf and dumb man, because he would have had that sort of, you know, that heart and he would have seen it and, and we don't know. So I don't know how much that stirred up, but it's possible that this is the result of the witness of one man, you know, that Jesus sent on his way at that time. We don't, don't know. Okay, now we come to the last verse of this bit. Uh, immediately, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay, interesting. Okay, so I think we've got a map again. Okay. Um, so... Dalmanutha's only used once in the New Testament. Okay, here. So there's no other reference to it. We don't know where it is. We know it's in Galilee. Um, most people say we just don't know where it is. Okay. 
I did come across one reference that said that there was a big cave that they had discovered on the shores um, with some inscriptions which were very similar spelling to Dalmanutha. Okay. But it seems to, elsewhere it's called uh, Magadan, uh, an area in which was the town of Magdala from which Mary Magdalene came. And Magdala just means tower. So they went across, oh, wrong thing again. Obviously they went across here somewhere this way uh, and as Ben points out next time they then got in the boat and went back again didn't they so or across the lake to some point okay so just to summarize then okay and just give a quote from Barclay which I think is lovely uh, in both these instants and events the healing and the feeding Jesus shows compassion it's an overriding thing and Barclay says, the most amazing thing about him is his sheer considerateness, a virtue which never forgets the details of life or of our lives. So there we are. Any other questions? Ben will answer. So, no. Any other thoughts or from that? I hope that was okay. For Just one interesting thought in that in verse 2, they have now continued with him for three days, suggesting yes. that they had been walking down with him en route, mm. and they reached this point. Yes. Um, but I suggest to you that not everybody had walked down there. Otherwise, no. you wouldn't have seven loaves. You would have eaten them already because of the time. Yeah, so yes. actually some yes, had indeed. joined in Yes, later. that's true, isn't it? Yeah. But the interesting thing was it's... It's like the feeding of the 5,000. Someone's got bread. Mm. Someone yeah. hasn't, has come. The, the Jesus has brought someone. Nah, aha. Someone has been brought in mm. for the, the miracle to actually work. Mm. Same with the 5,000. Mm. One little boy has come. Mm. And here we have another one with seven loaves. And yeah. I can't see how you would have gone three days and still have seven loads. No, that's so true. Yeah. Someone has been brought in mm. to make this miracle work. Mm. Yeah, indeed. I was just just wondering about how, whether all those people came with worry. Jesus from Sidon all the way down or where did they suddenly come from? Is it, <laughs> has anybody got any clue on that? Is it, did all those people, were all those people at Sidon came all the way through the mountains down there? Ooh. Or did the people I just assumed suddenly it was arrive? just the disciples that came with him. Yeah. So and then they gathered them once they were into the Decapolis region, yeah. Presumably. Presumably, yeah. I mean, it, I, yeah. I don't think it's clear. So. We don't they may know, have had following all the way We up. don't know where he got off from the boat, whether he was further down Galilee or whether further up Galilee, do we? Don't. Well, at the end... Yeah, we don't know exactly where it was, do we? No, that you yeah. got on it, no. no. More mysteries. <laughs> More mysteries, indeed, yeah, indeed. Here, go on, John. What I love about the passage is um, the prophets in the Old Testament, Elisha and Elijah, they fed people yeah. during mm. famine. Mm. Elisha did a hundred. Yeah. And what I love about this passage is mm. Jesus did 5,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then... That wasn't the end of it. He then went on and did another four thousand, yeah. and it just uh, it just shows just mm. 
I think of it as the water into wine, and just the volume. Yes. There. Yeah. It just, it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. abundance. He the Messiah. Yeah, <laughs> it was clear. <laughs> Definitely the Messiah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, and I love the, I mean, it's interesting to see the ESV translations, Martins and things, but um, verse 4, where it says, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Mm. You know, I think it's just such a great, um, it's just like manna, isn't it? And it's, yes. it's yes. as you say, because we've had the clear confirmation of uh, that Jesus is the Messiah with the, with the deaf and mute chap being healed, mm. and then we just get this, as you say, Martin, the living bread. Mm. Uh, bread in the wilderness, which reminds us again of, you know, even the start of the gospel and John the Baptist in the wilderness, mm. the whole wilderness theme mm. uh, going on. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you have anything, Martin, on Epfatha? Is that Aramaic? So oh, no, I didn't know that. It just seems be open, doesn't it? Be, uh, that's, yeah. what it's, that's, that's what it says. Aramaic. I presume it's Aramaic, yeah. Mm. Um, a couple of things. Going back to what John said uh, about feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. And of course, the fact that there was stuff left over means he could have gone on. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, this was an unlimited miracle. That's yeah. just, you mm. know, I love that thought. Also, I love the thought that there's so much there that we just don't know mm. um, that we have to speculate about. Mm. You know, why did he do this? Why did he do that? Yeah, yeah. And of course, nobody, well, we don't know. Maybe his disciples knew. But I love the way that even in the midst of revelation, he hides himself. And, the, you know, the scripture says he clothes himself with light, mm. you know, and, and it, it's like you have this revelation and yet you have the mystery at the same time, mm. you know, mm. and, and it's just this wonderful, um, I have, can't, can't think of the word, this, this, this wonderful nature of, of God that you just can't, fathom him how he's able to hold two seemingly contradictory things mm. together by mm. revealing himself and yet hiding himself it's, yeah, I yeah. just I just think God's so beautiful yeah, yeah. Um, when we started together um, the feeding of the 5,000 we um, I think it came up in conversation that the 12 baskets uh, were relevant to the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, what do people think about the seven baskets? The thought that came to me straight away was the seven cities in Revelation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't, you know, it's a bit deep and mm. a bit, a bit um, random. <laughs> but do, do other people have any thoughts? I mean, that was what we came up with for the, the feeding of the 5,000. And the seven must be significant. Must be significant. Mm. Yeah. Seven is always to do with the church. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Seven's to do with the church. Right. Yes. And you've got the seven churches in mm. Revelation. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Twelve tribes. So yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 It is. Yeah. Yes. Juice. What Sorry. is also interesting is the baskets were bigger yes. 
the seven and the Gentiles, yeah. mm. because the sheer number of Gentiles yeah. as well. Yes, mm. yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. If the seven, if it's the seven churches, they're all Gentiles, aren't yeah. they? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Is that what you said? I didn't actually no. say it. But so they are. Yeah. yeah, they are. Yeah. 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 yeah I'm just thinking about that. Just the whole, the fact that in the bit that I looked at, Jesus gets the disciples to rehearse the numbers, doesn't he? The seven <laughs> baskets in the top. Yes, he does. Yeah. Baskets. So there is, there must be yeah. significance to yeah. these numbers. Yeah. You know, mm. they're not just chucked out there, are they? Mm. And I love the fact that those. I hadn't thought of it, I, I made the distinction, but, but the fact that those baskets were obviously so much bigger mm. for the Gentiles, mm. so actually yeah. there was much more gathered up, mm. uh, which is amazing because it's more food than they started with as well, well isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So we bring yeah. a tiny bit and God just multiplies it. So that's mm. Thanks, Martin. Mm. Yeah. So uh, pleasure. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> And uh, I'll just pray, and then yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll come finish, and yeah. wend our way. But yeah, so much going on. Lord, we just mm. thank you for your uh, incredible word, Lord. Mm. Thank you that you mm. preserved in written form, Lord, uh, what you did on the earth. And yes. we just ask that you would give us more and more revelation, Lord, of what it means for our lives, mm. Lord, that there is no shortness of supply. Lord, help us to live that, Father. There is no shortness. And, and that you are the Messiah, that you are the one, and that everyone needs to hear. I love that revelation of Legion possibly having brought the deaf man and yes. having brought these thousands of people. Well, Lord, may each of us be a Legion, Lord. Each of us be uh, bringing a harvest to you, Lord God. Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Bless us tonight as we go our ways, Lord, yes. and be with us um, in the days to come. In your name, amen. Amen.